Okay, Revelation chapter 5. We are going to cover the entire chapter tonight of Revelation chapter 5. So please give your attention to God's word. So John continues in his vision. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits in the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay. Again, a very interesting scene in the throne room of God as we see the lamb who takes the scroll and then he himself is worshipped because he himself is found to be worthy of taking the scroll. So as we look at this passage, before we look at this passage, as I like to do, uh, just a little brief recap on what we saw last week as we looked at Revelation chapter 4. And two weeks, two weeks ago, we began looking at this third and longest section of the book of Revelation as we are now looking into the things that take place after this. Again, that threefold description or threefold breakdown of the book of Revelation, things which have taken place, things which are, and things, things which must take place after these. So the we are now in this section, Romans 4 or sorry, Revelation 4 to Revelation 20. And this section begins as we enter now the heavenly throne room and we are given this vision or John is given this vision of God on his throne in the heavenly throne room surrounded by his retinue and and he comes in there and he sees this glorious picture of the throne room of heaven. And much like Isaiah in the days when King Uzziah died or Ezekiel 
when he was with the, the, the Israel, uh, Israelite exiles along the Kibar Canal, uh, canal uh, John gets this vision of the king upon his throne. And last time we saw three things in that section in Roman, or Revelation chapter 4. First, we saw the one who was seated upon the throne, which is God. John was translated, he was taken in the spirit up into the throne room to give, be given this ecstatic vision. And he sees one seated on the throne. More importantly, he sees, besides the throne, he sees the one who is on the throne. And as John tries to describe what he sees, words begin to fail him. Because he starts saying, I saw this, it looked like this, it appeared like that. He can't even really fully describe the one on the throne. He has to describe what his appearance is like. Because no one can see the full-on glory of God and survive. But secondly, we saw those around the throne. The angelic attendants. We saw the 24 elders and concluded that they are heavenly beings. They are angels who represent the fullness of the people of God. 24 of them to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and to represent the 12 disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So together they are angelic beings that represent God's people before the throne room. Then we saw the seven spirits of God as it were as seven torches of fire surrounding the throne. And then we saw these awesome four living creatures, the cherubim, these angelic attendants that um, are there at the throne. They're sort of like the throne attendants. They they guard the glory and honor of God. And they kind of are like the, you know, if you think of in the olden days, you know, people that would carry a throne, you know, somebody sitting on a throne and they would be the people carrying the, the, it's almost as if that's what the cherubim are in this case. They're around the throne. And then the third thing we saw, so we saw the uh, one upon the throne, we saw those around the throne, and then finally we saw the activity that's taking place before the throne, which is worship. So ceaselessly, day and night, these angelic beings worship God. They worship the one on the throne. So the cherubim and the 24 elders praise God all day long as they say the same words that you see in Isaiah 6, where they say, holy, holy, holy is the one who is upon the throne to receive honor and glory and power. Let his glory fill the earth. So they ascribe holiness to God. They ascribe worthiness to God. And God's worthiness is based on one simple fact, that he created and sustains all things. Because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, he is worthy. He is worthy to be worshipped by these angelic beings whom he created. And then we closed last time by kind of discussing briefly the purpose that the, of the vision that John receives here. Because if you think about it, the book of Revelation really is the last word that God speaks to his people until the return of Christ. You know, so this is what we have, and it's the last book in what we have in the Bible, and it's God's last words to us. And the vision here then of God upon his throne, high and lifted up, shows to a church that is suffering persecution in the world that God is in control, he is on his throne, and he is now getting ready to move in judgment. God is and always will be in control, and he will judge the wicked, and he will vindicate the righteous. So we get before you get the scenes of what's going to happen in the church age between the time of Christ's resurrection and the time of his return, you are given this image of God in control on his throne. Again, just like with Isaiah, when you have this moment of great 
uh, turmoil and chaos and change in human governments when the king of 52 years for, for Israel died. King Uzziah died. He was in charge for 52 years. When he, when he died, there was a big power vacuum. As you would imagine, in any country ruled by one person for 52 years, when that person dies, everything goes nuts. You know, it's like, what do we do now? You know, we need to you know, scramble and get a new king. That's when Isaiah gets a vision. It's like, don't worry about what's going on down here. I'm in control. I'm still on my throne, and you will be my prophet now to my people. Same thing with John. Don't worry what's going on down here. Okay, because what's going down here is under my sovereign control. I am getting ready now to move in final judgment. So now as we come into our section today, I keep saying Romans. What's wrong with me? I've got Romans on the brain here today. It's an R word. I keep wanting to say Romans. So as we head now into Revelation chapter 5, the vision in heaven continues. So we've seen God in all his glory. But now the question is, is he going to do anything? He's on his throne. He's exalted. He's lifted up. The angels are worshiping him. But what is he going to do? What are we going to, you know, what's the next step here? Is he going to act? And that's what we're going to see tonight as we now see the lamb and the scroll. That's, that's the, the kind of the title, if you will, of tonight's lesson, the lamb and the scroll. So first we see in Revelation uh, 5, verses 1 through 4, after the awesome scene in Revelation 4 of God seated upon his throne and the angels praising God for his holiness, John sees something in God's right hand. He sees something in the hand of the one upon the throne, as we see in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John sees... God, not like, again, not seeing God in his pure essence. He's seeing a vision of God and he's sitting on his throne and he's holding a scroll in his right hand. Now, I don't know, do some people have translations that say book? Anybody? Book? Okay. I mean, it, it's a, it should be scroll. I mean, the, the word can mean book or scroll depending on its on the context. But the idea is that in this time period, they didn't have anything like what we would understand as books. Okay. The codex would not be developed until about 100 years after this fact. So this would have been a scroll, uh, probably made of parchment or papyrus. But it's got writing on both sides. So it's got writing on the inside. It's got writing on the outside. If you know anything about scrolls in those days, really only one side was the, the best side to write on. The back side would have been rough and hard to write on. And, but the inside would have been the, 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 right, the actual writing surface. Now, the fact that it has writing on both sides, which is unusual, kind of tells you the importance of what's on the scroll. Now, in the Roman Empire during those days, uh, contracts or wills or covenants or like last wills and testaments were things that were written on scrolls. And in fact, in the Roman Empire, uh, in particular, it would be like a last will and testament, something very important that would have writing on both sides. The inside would have all of the details of the will. The outside would have sort of like a summary of what you're going to read on the inside. So if you've got like a study Bible and you've got like the first couple pages before each book, you got a little bit of summary of what the book is about and some details. And then you've got then the actual details of the book itself. The outside would have some of the summary of what's inside and the inside would have all the details of the contract. But more importantly, we see that the scroll is sealed 
with seven seals. This means that not only are the contents kept secret, because you can't read them until you break the seals, but it also the idea of seven seals is that what is contained inside is inviolable. It is unchangeable. You cannot change what's about to happen here. Now, of course, the $64,000 question is this. What is the scroll? What is the scroll? Who has, who has an idea of what they think the scroll is? I didn't have time to study this tonight, so I'm hoping maybe you guys can help me out uh, with what the scroll is. I'm kidding, by the way. I did study this. But... <laughs> okay, well, there are several suggestions, all of which have some kind of merit. So th- these are some of the things I saw. It's God's covenant. It's God's law. It's God's promises. It's God's plans. It's the title deed of the earth. Or is the last will and testament of the earth. So it could be any or all of these things. Now, I've got an idea, a theory, and it's kind of a little bit of a combination of a couple of these. But there are a lot of similarities with this scroll and what we see in Daniel chapter 12. You don't need to turn there, but at the end of Daniel chapter 12, in the 12th chapter... Um, Michael, the archangel, uh, delivers a scroll to, to, to Daniel, and he is told to seal the contents of the scroll. In verse 4 of chapter 12, he says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, should be scroll, seal the scroll until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So Daniel is given a scroll, it's, and, and he's told... Seal the scroll and do not reveal its contents until the very end. Now in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we see another double-sided scroll that contains words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10, And when I looked, behold, this is Ezekiel, When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So again, the scroll given to the prophet Ezekiel. Now, both Ezekiel and Daniel are kind of apocalyptic type prophets. They, they preach or they prophesy a lot about what's going to happen in the end times. And uh, what the, the scroll that has been given to him, uh, a sealed scroll that contains... All of God's plans and purposes for human history and the salvation of his people. So that's what I think is going on here. The scroll that we see here is similar to the scroll in Daniel uh, 12, which is sealed. It's similar to the scroll in Ezekiel 2, which has got writing on both sides. And what is happening here is he's given a scroll that contains God's plans for the future. God's plans for his ultimate redemption of all things. His, the fulfillment of all of redemptive history coming forth here. And it's been sealed, at least in the Old Testament. But now it's ready to be presented to one who is worthy, who can then break the seals and finally complete the plan and fulfill everything God has decreed for human history. But there's one small, eensy, weensy, teeny, weeny little problem. No one can be found to open the scroll. Look at verses 2 and 3. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
So you got this mighty angel. This is probably the same angel we'll see throughout Revelation in Revelation 10.1 and in Revelation 18, 1 and 2, a, a mighty angel. He cries out with this great voice and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Now, the time that the saints of the Almighty have been waiting for is now at hand. The scroll has been presented. The one on the throne presents the scroll. It is ready to be opened. And now the angel asks who's there to open it. And the problem is there's no one there to take the scroll. There's no one worthy to take it. There's no one in the whole created order. That's why you get this. In heaven, that's the world above. Earth, that's our world. Or under the earth, that's the underworld where the dead people are. So no one, no angel, no man, no, no living man, no dead person, no one can be found in all creation to open the scroll. No one is worthy. Well, hopefully there are a few people out here who know the legend of King Arthur, the sword and the stone, okay? So you've got Excalibur, the sword of the king, it's in the stone. And all of England is coming and they have these contests to see who can pull the stone or the sword out of the stone, and no one can. No one's worthy. Because it's not a question of how strong you are. It's not a question of how accomplished you are in battle. It is a, it's a question of who is the right person to take the sword. None of the, the warriors of England could take the sword out of the stone. It was only the boy King Arthur, because he was the one who was prophesied who could take the sword. And consider where this is taking place. This is taking place in the heavenly throne room. So this vision in heaven, John is told, no one is worthy to be found to take this scroll. That means none of the cherubim, these four living creatures, none of them is worthy. None of the 24 elders are worthy to take the scroll. None of the thousands and thousands of angels that we'll see in a few verses are worthy to take the scroll. No one. Because there's no mere creature that can take this scroll. Now it's interesting because notice how at least the narrate, you know, how this scene is narrated, and how it kind of the scene kind of slows down to highlight the fact that no one is worthy here to take the scroll except what we'll see later is Jesus. Now you could have gotten the very you could have had the very same effect if you just said. So the scroll was in the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne and no one was worthy to take it except, the, except Jesus. And there would have been no drama. But here, you know, the, the vision is being given to John in such a way to kind of create this dramatic tension as the scroll is being presented and no one's worthy to take it. And the idea of this, this thought that no one is worthy to take this scroll causes John great sorrow and grief in verse 4. He says, I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. So he's, he's, he is in anguish, and it's not hard to see why. Because here we have this seven-sealed scroll of God's destiny for human history, and no one can be found to open it. Now, does this mean then that God's will is thwarted? Is God's will, uh, will it be, you know, will the saints ever be vindicated? The idea here, John is trying, you know, you're trying, you have to try to imagine John's anguish here, his despair, his frustration. As here he's being given this vision, God is in control, here's God's plan, and no one can take it. And he's in, he's in anguish, he is, he is in despair over this. 
It would be like reading a great multi-part epic saga and then you find out that there's no last book to complete the story. You just don't know how the story is going to end. It's very frustrating. We need to know how this is going to end. Except this is worse because we're talking about the fate of God's plans of redemption. Well, moving on now to verses 5 through 7. When all hope appears to be lost, one of the elders goes up to John and taps him on the shoulder. John, don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and and its seven seals. So while no one in the entire created order is worthy to take up the scroll, the line of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And of course, this is speaking of Jesus. He is described in two ways here. He is first described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, quick quiz here. Who can... Who knows where we can find that reference to Jesus as the line of the tribe of Judah, or at least a reference that's something like that. Genesis. Genesis. Okay. Do you know the context in Genesis? Genesis 49. Yeah. So it's, it's in the context of Jacob at the end of his life. Of course, that was at the end of the book of Genesis because Genesis has 50 chapters. So he's at the end of his life, and he's blessing his 12 sons. And when he gets to Judah, his fourth son, from his first wife, the one that he was tricked into marrying, (laughs) Leah, but his fourth son, in verse 9 and verse 10, we see uh, Jacob says to his son, Judah is a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here, Jacob is pronouncing a blessing on his son Judah, and it turns out to be prophetic, because he says that out of Judah will come not only the kings of Israel, but the great king of Israel, Jesus Christ, and the scepter which is a sign or symbol of kingship or rulership, shall not pass from him. It shall not depart from between his feet until all tribute comes to him. Now, obviously, this, is not, this was not fulfilled in Judah's lifetime. It was not fulfilled in any of the kings of Israel's lifetime. Maybe symbolically or prophetically in David or Solomon's lifetime, or at least in, in a kind of a picture form. But it's not fulfilled completely until Jesus, the great Son of David. Now, he's also described here as the root of David. Who knows where that comes from? The root of David. Isaiah, right. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now, in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah 11, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. And again, this is uh, this is Jesus, uh, great David's greater son, according to the flesh. Now, this idea of the stump of Jesse 
Of course, Jesse was David's father, right? So Jesse gave birth to David, the great king. And when it says the stump of Jesse, think of a tree stump, okay? So you got this great tree growing up, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. And then when the, the nations, uh, when, when Judah and Israel finally committed so much sin that they were exiled into captivity for their apostasy, think of you know, that tree then being cut. And what you're left with is the stump. Okay, now, you know, unless, you know, that stump is just going to be there, it's not going to grow a tree anymore. The point is when the kings acted so wickedly, the kings themselves were cut off. In fact, one of the kings, I think it was Jeconiah, one of the, I think that's the name. He was was so wicked, God finally said to him, that's it, no more kings shall come from your loins. Now, you know, Jesus has a nice way of kind of, you know, God has a nice providential way of getting around that curse with Jesus, but the idea is you've got this stump, which is the dead Davidic line. It was cut off, leaving a stump. But here we're told in Isaiah that a branch shall spring forth from that stump and will bear fruit. And that branch is uh, Jesus, uh, great David's greater son. This is the one who is worthy, the one who is the line of the tribe of Judah, the one who is the root of David, this great king. He is worthy. And he is worthy because he has conquered. He has conquered. Now, how is Jesus conquered? Because we're talking here prior to the second coming. So how is Jesus conquered? Being raised from the dead. Exactly. Jesus conquered sin and death by his own victory on the cross. The enemies of sin and death are far worse enemies than anything we've ever had to face in this world. In fact, I don't think any human being can really fully appreciate what Christ accomplished on the cross. I mean, you, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion, Mel Gibson's ver, you know, version of the life and death of Jesus Christ, and it's so focused on his physical sufferings. Because in Roman Catholic tradition, it's the, the passion, the sufferings of Christ. You know, by his stripes we are healed. But this physical suffering he suffered on the cross was nothing compared to suffering the wrath of God for our sins. And you don't see that. You don't, in fact, if you read any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, it's almost mentioned as an afterthought. He died. He was crucified. And that's it. You know? But we know that in that death, he suffered the entire wrath for our sins. But his victory on the cross makes what will happen upon his return essentially a foregone conclusion. His return at the end in the second coming, it's, it's like the most one-sided victory of one-sided victories in the history of one-sided victories because there's no competition. He comes with this great retinue and then his sword comes out of his mouth and slays everybody there because he had won the victory on the cross. That's why that victory later on will be nothing compared to the victory he won here. 1 Corinthians 15, if I had to pick sort of a Mount Rushmore of chapters in the Bible, that would be one of them. Romans 8 would be another one. John 3 would be another one. I have to think of a fourth one since there's only four on Mount Rushmore. But 1 Corinthians 15 teaches about the resurrection. And at the end of that chapter, in verses 54 through 57, Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable. 
and when the mortal puts on immortality. So that's when we in our natural bodies are then clothed in our glorified bodies, the imperishable, the immortal. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection was the final victory over sin and death, and that gave us the victory. So we have the victory in him, and then when he comes, the victory that he will achieve at the end will be nothing compared to the victory he won on the cross. So upon hearing one of the elders tell him about the lion, John then turns to see. And in verse 6, this is what he sees. Between the throne and the four living beings, or four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah has won the victory. He has conquered. He is worthy. But then when he turns to see... He sees between all the angels there around the throne, he sees a lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain, a slaughtered-looking lamb. And the image of a slain lamb conjures up the ideas of the Jewish sacrifices and of the Passover. Of course, if you know during the Passover in Exodus 12, they were told, kill an unblemished lamb. Then you take that blood and you spread it on your doorposts. And then when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your home. You will be spared because the lamb was slain for you. Or in Isaiah 53, verse 7, that great, maybe that would be the fourth chapter, Isaiah 53, on the Mount Rushmore of chapters. But anyway, in Isaiah 53, 7, when you get the, 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 one of the servant songs, the messianic servant is seen as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Or as we've been going through the Gospel of John in the mornings, John the Baptist declares the first time he sees Jesus, he declares, he sees Jesus and, and he declares, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus here is this lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the slaughtered lamb who takes over the sin, who, who takes away, I should say, the sin of the world. So Jesus Christ is the conquering lion from the tribe of Judah who achieved his victory by being the lamb who was slain. That's how he achieves his victory. He doesn't achieve his victory through great military mighty conquests. He achieves his victory by submissively, humbly going to the cross to obey the will of his father and die a death that we deserve to die. Now, what a juxtaposition of images. You've got this lion, this, car, this mighty beast, the king of the jungle, and then you've got a lamb, one of the dumbest farm animals in creation, so docile, so, you know, you know, you know you're you lion, you've got, you know, you got this, these two juxtapositions of such disparate images here of one person. It, it combines in one person, the lion and the lamb, Jesus Christ. And it was by being this lamb who was slain that he could be the great king from the tribe of Judah. Which tells us something again that the Bible continually tells us, which is that the road to glory leads through the cross. The road to exaltation first goes through humiliation. Get used to hearing me say this. I'll be saying this 
over and over again over the years and months and years to go. Glory goes through the cross to humiliation into exaltation. In fact, if you think about Jesus' life during his earthly ministry, think of all the ways Satan tried to divert him from going to the cross. Right In his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry, what is one of the things Satan does to tempt Jesus? He says, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you worship me. In other words, you're going to be the king. Let me give you a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow before me right now. I will give you the kingdoms. It's a way of subverting the glory by going through the cross. Or again, later on, at the, right before he was about to be crucified, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's so anxious about what's going on, drops of blood start to bead down his forehead. And what does he say to his father in prayer? He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from, my, from before me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Again, he was tempted in, the, in this dark night of his soul to bypass the cross and to bypass the suffering. But Jesus had to go to the cross. It was necessary that he go to the cross. It was God's will. It was his plan. And Jesus fulfilled it to a T. So here is this lamb as though it had been slain, but it's it's an interesting looking lamb because it's a lamb like no other lamb because it's a lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So you got seven, seven, seven. You got you know you, know, you have seven repeated three times. So the number of perfection, the number of you know fulfillness or fullness, and here it's repeated three times to emphasize. But horns are a symbol of power. Okay, it's a, it's an ancient Jewish symbol of strength or power. So we're going to see beasts and everything else throughout the book of Revelation, and they have horns and so on. It's just a, it's a symbol of power. But having seven horns is meant to show that Jesus has ultimate power. He has the fullness of power. He, is, he has great power. And then he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and just means that Jesus possesses an infinite, all-seeing knowledge, and that he is filled with the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. As we saw this morning in John chapter 3 and verse 34 of Jesus, it is said that he had the Spirit without measure. He had the fullness of the Spirit. So does this one, this, this lion and lamb who is worthy, and he then takes the scroll in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So Jesus is the one through whom God's divine plan of redemption will reach its consummation. And then finally, in verses 8 through 14, we see worship. So what happens after the lamb takes the scroll? We we see a scene of great worship. Three scenes of worship here. As they sing, worthy is the lamb. I always think of that song... uh, Angus Day, you know, worthy is the land, worthy is. But um, in verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you've got this heavenly retinue, the, the God's heavenly court, his cherubs, his four living creatures and the 24 elders, which represent God's people. 
And they all fall down now before the Lamb. So the Lamb comes and takes the throne. And when, the, when these angelic creatures see that they fall down and worship the Lamb now. Now we saw this happen before in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. When they sang a song of worship to the one who was on the throne because he is worthy, because he created all things and he sustains all things. Then they fell down and worshiped him. And they fell down to their faces to the ground and worshiped the one upon the throne, the Father. And now here they are worshiping the Son, the Lamb, the one who is the Lion. Now this says a couple of things. First, it confirms the the deity of Jesus Christ as God, because it is only God who is worthy to receive worship. The Creator is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped by the creature. But it also indeed uh, confirms that Jesus Christ is worthy then to take that scroll. Because the minute he takes the scroll, then all the angelic hosts start to bow down and worship him. And as these angelic servants fall down to worship the lion and the lamb, John notes that each one of these elders and uh, living creatures is holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. Now, this harp would have been a smaller, kind of like a lute-like instrument. You know, not like the big giant harps you see people play in the, you know, in the orchestras or whatever. So it's a small harp, and they have this bowl full of incense. Now the harp is an instrument that is used often in Jewish worship, particularly you see it in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 33, 2, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, the harp. Uh, make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. And the golden bowls of incense are explained here by John as representative of the prayers of the saints. So the golden bowls of incense would have been used in, in Israelite worship to burn incense before God, before, in the, in, in the uh, holy place, before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Jewish rite of burning incense was symbolic of the prayers or the offerings rising up before God as a pleasing aroma of thanksgiving and offering to God. In fact, in later Jewish thought, it was thought that angels were seen as presenting the prayers of the people before God. But in Psalm 141, verse 2, the psalmist says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So the psalmist is talking about his prayers being like incense before God. Or as we'll see a little bit later in Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Again, this idea of the incense being the prayers of the saints presented before God. But another thing these angels are doing as they're worshiping is that we see them singing a new song. They are singing a new song. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This idea of a new song is not like, you know, a new praise and worship song or, you know, like a, you know, a new contemporary worship song. No, the idea of new songs is something we do see throughout the Bible. New songs were always sung by God's people 
to commemorate God's great acts of deliverance or salvation. So you think in Exodus 15, after they cross the Red Sea, Moses then sings a song to praise God for his deliverance. And then the next chapter over, Miriam sings a song of worship as well. Or maybe that is Miriam in Exodus 15. I might be mixing the two up. There's a song that is sung after the, after the crossing of the Red Sea. I know that for certain. Or you have in Judges 5, you have Deborah sing the song after they defeat the armies of whoever it was that was oppressing them. But the, they kill Sisera and his armies. And then Deborah sings a song of praise in Judges 5. Or David at the end of his life in 2 Samuel 22, after he is finally delivered from all of his enemies and after Absalom's revolt and all the other you know, things that were going on in his life later in life, he sings a psalm, a new song at the end of his life, which I believe is Psalm 18. If you look at the Psalter, they're the same thing. Or more importantly, think of at the birth of Jesus Christ. The heavenly host then bursts forth in praise and sing a song of praise as Jesus now comes into the world. So all of these instances of new songs being sung as God's redemptive acts are being carried out and the people then commemorate these redemptive acts in song. And again, just as with the bowing down before the heavenly retinue, here they were singing to God, now they are singing to the Son. They are singing to the Lamb who is worthy. So the Father is worthy because he created all things, and the Son, or the Lamb, is worthy because he was slain, and his death accomplished redemption. As we said earlier, the Lamb conquered by being slain. The the Lamb achieved his victory by being slain, by being killed. And his death then ransomed a people for God from everywhere. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. And these people whom the Lamb redeemed by his blood have been made then into a kingdom of priests to our God. This idea of kingdom of priests, again, is another ancient designation for Israel. They themselves were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19.6. And now this is being applied to the church. So as a kingdom of priests... As a holy nation, they will reign on the earth, which is something we see later on in Revelation chapter 20. The the resurrected saints will reign over the earth. But then John sees even more. But wait, there's more. (laughs) So not only are the four living creatures and the 24 elders worshiping, but then he looks in verses 11 and 12. I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So not only do the living creatures and the elders offer songs of praise, but now the entire heavenly host is offering praise before the Lamb. Thousands and thousands, I mean, basically an infinite number of angels, more angels than John could count because he runs out of words to describe it. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and I don't have a number to, I just call it like a jillion. How's that? We've got about a jillion angels out here, and they're worshiping God. And then finally, if that's not enough, the whole of creation joins in the praise in verses 13 and 14. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And again, notice you know, this idea here of power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory, or glory and might and blessing and honor. You know, these are all the things they are ascribing to the Lamb. May all these things be given to you because you are worthy. But note also here in these last two verses, the parallel with verse 3. So whereas before when they were trying to find someone worthy to open the scroll and they couldn't find anybody in heaven or anybody on earth or anybody under the earth who was worthy, now you have everyone in heaven, everyone on the earth, everyone under the earth, in fact, everyone in the sea, all of creation worshiping God now, worshiping the Lamb who is infinitely worthy. And, also, you know, and then you kind of also see like an expanding... Uh, radius of worship. First, worship starts around the throne with the four living creatures and the 24 elders, then to the myriads of angels, and then finally to all of creation. So it centers on the throne where the Lamb has taken the scroll from the one who sits upon the throne, and then worship just radiates outward throughout all of creation as worship fills the earth. And it's all because the Lamb who is worthy takes the scroll in order to bring God's eternal plan of redemption to completion. But as we close for tonight, the idea here is that it's all about Jesus Christ, right? It's all centering on Jesus Christ. All of redemptive history centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, redemptive history has been moving inexorably to the cross. Everything in the Old Testament from the moment Adam and Eve sinned is on a trajectory to the cross or however many thousand years later from the moment that he ate that fruit. It's all moving in that direction because the cross is the central focal point of all of redemptive history. And then everything after the cross is just the final fulfillment of God's plans. He's bring, that's the last great act of redemption before the second coming of Christ is now we're just waiting for that moment of fullness to come when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, as Romans 11 will say, and as the Jews then come in, then the end will come at some point in the future. And the line of the tribe of Judah is worthy because he is the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Well, that's it for tonight. Next time in two weeks, Lord willing, on the 21st, We'll start looking at Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse.